Right, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 8, continuing the series of Psalms, kind of the highlights of the Psalms, and this, uh, for many, including for me, is, is one of them, the majesty of the name of the Lord our God. So let me read it for us. Psalm 8 is nice and short, nice and succinct, but full of <clears throat> wonderful truth for us. Psalm 8, the very word of God. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to your, at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As we come before God's word, let me pray for us once again. Father in heaven, now we come before the word that you have given to us. We ask that you would speak to us through it this morning. And fulfill the promise that you have made, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you void, instead accomplishing what you purpose for it, and being successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, open our eyes to see, and our ears to hear what you would have us learn this morning. And in doing so, make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that we might walk to what it teaches us. For all of this, we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, technically, Reformation Sunday was last Sunday, the last Sunday in October, but Reformation Day was yesterday, and so it seems appropriate, especially given the subject matter of this psalm, to look back to a couple of our forebears in the faith, leaders of the Reformation. I don't often quote things, but here are a couple quotes that are, are very, very appropriate for the psalm that's before us this morning. First one is this. Our wisdom, this should sound familiar to a lot of you, <laughs> our wisdom, insofar as not to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely in two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. The opening sentence of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. I'd be remiss if I didn't borrow also from Martin Luther, whom I'm named after. (laughs) From one of his well-known works, The Bondage of the Will. He's talking about the will and how we can understand human will. And he says this, This point forms another part of the whole sum of Christianity 
on which depends and in which is at stake the knowledge of ourselves and of God and his glory. The point Luther is arguing is the extent and nature of man's will, its freedom, or its bondage. A worthwhile study indeed, but what he says is we cannot study that, we cannot understand it, it's impossible without a deep knowledge of ourselves and of God in his glory. Calvin agrees and says this, this dual knowledge is the essence, the very essence of wisdom itself. We shouldn't be surprised that the two great minds of the Reformation agree on this point. You cannot call yourself wise if you don't understand who you are, who mankind is, and who God is. The study of man by itself is worthwhile, but incomplete, if God is also not studied. The study of God is worthwhile, but also incomplete, if mankind is also not studied. So what a blessing and a privilege it is that God has not left us to flounder about in our study of either of those subjects, but has given us his word and in particular has given us Psalm 8, which itself is an instruction in and an observation of and a celebration of these two vital, essential areas of knowledge. Thinking about divine soul music, I think of Psalm 8 as the music of the soul that knows itself (laughs) and knows God. It's a soul that revels in and is amazed at the glory of God, and is in wonder at the man who is in relation to that glorious God and our relationship with that God and what that means. What I want to really do this morning is simply look at what the psalm teaches us about God and what it teaches us about ourselves. You'll see in the the title, uh, The Glory of God and the Dignity of Man. Those two things are part and parcel of what we'll look at this morning. First, I want to look at the glory of God in Psalm 8. Now, it's tempting, and sometimes you see this in, in uh, commentaries or, or, or little studies about the psalm, to divide it into two parts or two subjects. It's partly about God and partly about man, and I kind of implied that myself in my introduction. That's really not true. This is really a psalm that's all about God. The whole psalm is about God. It's about God himself, who he is. But when man comes into the picture, it's about what God has done for man. So even when the psalm looks at man, it looks at it through the lens of what God has done for man. He's mindful of man. He cares for mankind. He's made mankind. He's given man certain things. So look at who this God is and what he has done for us. The psalm begins and ends famously with the same phrase, the same sentence. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This bookend, beginning and end, means to tell us that this is the heart and soul 
of what this psalm is all about, to conjure up, to, to educe from us praise to God and His majestic name. It's the main theme of the psalm. The majesty of the name of God. Majesty, some translations have how excellent is your name. Majesty is a, a better translation because it brings in the idea of power and rule. How majestic is your name. God certainly is excellent, but a vital part of that excellence is his power, his might, and his rule. This is evident in how the psalm begins and ends. In most of our English Bibles today, you'll see the first Lord of, O Lord, our Lord, in small capital letters. This is to tell us that what we're seeing here is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. We pronounce it that way, but we really don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. We really don't even know what it means. We know that somehow it's tied to this idea of the eternal existence of God. I am that I am. But it's that incomprehensible, unknowable name of God. The God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. But he's also a Lord, a ruler. One to whom we owe our allegiance, our service, and our obedience. God is majestic, and that majesty is evidenced in his very name, that unknown, mysterious, yet revealed name. How majestic is that name in all the earth, says David. Nothing else compares. So we know already from this declaration of praise that begins and ends the psalm, That God is different and very different from us and from the rest of his creation. That idea continues in the latter half of verse 1. He set his own glory above the heavens. In other words, his glory, his existence is outside of creation itself. Creation cannot contain the glory of God. And then we get to verse 2, which ought to puzzle us a little bit. But we'll get there, I think, in this verse. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, God has established strength or ordained praise, which is how the Greek version of the Old Testament translates this and how Jesus uses it in Matthew from our New Testament reading. From the mouths of babies and infants, God has established or, or strength or ordained praise. And he does this to confound his enemies, to still them and those that would avenge. So think about that in relation to babies and infants. It's not the birth of infants. It's not their helplessness once they are born, their weakness. It's not any perceived purity we might see in a newborn babe that gives glory to God by establishing his strength and giving him praise. In fact, it's really not that accurate to call a birth a miracle. It's the God-ordained way (laughs) of having children. Happens thousands, if not millions of times a day around the world. 
What the psalm is saying is that it's the speech of babies and infants that establishes the strength of God and gives Him praise. So those that cannot speak, those that can only babble noise that has no meaning, from that itself, from that paltry, pathetic utterance, praise to God and glory. How is that done? Well, I think it's partly answered in the rest of the psalm, but uh, we'll get to that more completely in a bit. Verse 3 goes on to introduce what follows about man, but by referring to God's power in creation. Here David, the psalmist, is considering what God has done. His mere fingers, the, the furthest extremity of his strength, his power, is what he used to make and to put in place the heavens, the moon, and stars, and all that exists. We, we talk about someone being able to do something by their little finger. This is the idea David has in mind. God, by his little finger, by the merest, smallest effort, <laughs> made everything that exists. This is the power and glory and might of God the Creator. So the opening of the psalm is, is a lesson, a brief lesson, but a powerful lesson in who God is. He's different from us. He's outside of His creation, greater than His creation. He made it. He has to be greater than it. That's a lesson we cannot forget, and yet we forget it far too often. God is not like us, and we are not like Him. Two common mistakes to think that God is like us, to judge Him by our standards. My God wouldn't do that. My God doesn't think that way. To make God into something like a human, whether a Greek or Roman pantheon, the Hindu pantheon, or even the Mormon religion, which takes God and makes him a glorified human being, basically. God is not us. He's not like us. That's preposterous. And yet we do it all the time. But neither are we like God's. We like to make idols out of ourselves, whether it's religion that promotes us and lifts us up, certain religious beliefs, you can think of Buddhism, where you become part of the greater thing by your own efforts and harmony with things around you, or just, just think of our Western tools that we use to do this. Reason, science, philosophy. We can use these things to figure out life, to conquer it, to make things better. We don't need God. And that's really what the Enlightenment said. We don't need God. We can figure things out ourselves. And that is, in effect, making us gods. And it's a failure. For all the scientific advancement that we have, for all the wealth that we have, life, life is no better spiritually than it ever has been at least not by human effort. In reality, both of those go together. We try to bring down God down to us. We try to reach up to Him. But what this psalm reminds us of, God, God is not like us, and we are not like Him. 
Indeed, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then David goes on to describe what God does for man in verses 4 and following. Given who this God is, given his glory and his majesty and his power, what is man? Stop right there in the sentence. What is man? What is man in comparison to God? Who are we? How can we be so proud as to tear down God to our level or raise ourselves up to his? What is man in comparison to God? Given all these things, what is man? This is the cry of David's soul in this psalm. And it, I think, is ours as well. It's the cry of every single soul when it really, truly confronts or is confronted by the majesty and the glory and the power and wonderfulness of God. It's all those biblical characters that we read about who, when confronted by God's glory in some way, shape, or form, can do nothing but fall down on their face in humility and worship. When we really understand and begin to understand who God is, His glory, His majesty, we can can only do the same. Bow ourselves down, humble ourselves before Him in embarrassment and in shame. Because we're weak and we're petty and we're finite. And if we're honest, we're full of sin. David's question is a valid question. What is man? Compared to this God in heaven. Pathetic, that's what man is. If we stop right there. (coughs) Excuse me, but the psalm does not stop there, does it? What is man? God is mindful of us. God cares for man. We poor beggars. He thinks about us. And he cares about us. Every single person. Not only that, he's made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angelic host, and crowned us with glory and with honor. He's lifted us up from our lowly estate and given us a measure of glory and honor, just just a little lower than those angelic beings. Now, I should say here as an aside, there's some debate here about what is meant. The word in, in Hebrew is Elohim. That's a word you've heard before. It's used uh, oftentimes to speak of God himself. But it can also refer to angelic heavenly beings. And the question is, which one here? Uh, a man as, as wise as James Montgomery Boyce thinks we should translate this as God. You have made him a little lower than God, and therefore above everything else, including the angels. And he partly argues that uh, that is true because we will judge angels. But I think the broader biblical testimony supports the idea that what's meant here are the angels, the heavenly beings, um, because of what we've seen in Scripture over and over, that even when angels come to mere men, they fall down and want to worship, and an angel constantly has to say, no, no, get up, I'm I'm a servant like you. We We are humbled in the presence of the heavenly beings. I would also say, in in contrast to Dr. Boyce, with some fear and trepidation, 
Um, it's believers who will judge angels, not all of mankind. And all of mankind is what's in view in this psalm here. Every single person on the face of the earth and whoever has walked on the face of the earth and whoever will walk on the face of the earth is what's being written about here. The word is enosh, mankind. So think about that. God thinks about you. He cares for you. He's given you glory and honor and made you a little lower than the angels. But that's not all. What is man? Man is the one to whom God has given dominion over the works of his own hands, his own creation. All things under man's feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, and all else in the seas. There's nothing left out of that list. The crown of God's creation, as we saw in our Old Testament reading, was man himself, male and female. David here is remembering that creation and that dominion given to man by God to care for all that God had made. Again, this is every single person, every single human being, every single one made in the image of God who have these blessings, these kind gifts from God himself. God is mindful of every person, cares for every person, made every person a little lower than the angels, crowned every person with honor and glory made in his image, and to every person has given dominion over God's creation. God has done this, David says. He doesn't state it as a fact. He states it as something that God has done. God has ordained it. God has set it up this way. So here's that other lesson. Mankind has dignity. God has glory. Man has dignity. Every single person on the face of the earth has God-given dignity. Here's another truth that, sadly, is very often difficult to apply in our lives. Because we look around and see the sin and evil and wickedness of man and forget the dignity that still <coughs> excuse me, remains. We look around and see how foolish people are, how lazy people are. Poverty and desecration and homelessness. Focus on those things and forget each one of those people is made in the image of God. That stinky, smelly, homeless person is made in the image of God and has dignity because of it. Even if their own laziness contributed to it. We like to make excuses. We can't do that. God has given them inherent dignity. Remembering it is vital for Christian living. It's behind, it supports the command that we're given to love our neighbor. Why do good? Why be kind? Why have compassion for those who hate us? Pray for them and bless them. Because they have a dignity that God has given to them. And because God has commanded us to. Why do good and why be kind and why have compassion for the homeless, the poor, the widow, the orphan that Scripture so often speaks of? 
as vile as their life may be, and as responsible for their own destitution as they may be. Because they have a dignity given to them by God himself. Why do good and be kind and have compassion on those who look different from us? Skin is a different color. Their language is different than ours. Their accent, their politics are different than ours. Their behavior is bizarre and sinful and strange. Because God has given them dignity. God himself. Who is man in relation to God? Make David's cry even more personal. Who am I? Who am I in relation to God? Who am I that God should think of me and care about me? And who are you? Knowing these things, how can we, how can we dare to look down on another person? created in the image of God and crowned with glory and honor, made a little lower than the angels. We have a dignity that comes from God himself. If we do not see that dignity, if we do not act accordingly, we do not have wisdom because we do not know ourselves. What's interesting here is men, men are both the most despicable and most precious of creatures. Precious because of that dignity given to us by God. Despicable because we have sinned with a high hand against Him. So there's a bit of a dilemma that this psalm presents us with. A psalm that David knows about us. A dilemma that David knows about and that he writes about in others of his psalms and that we will look at, God willing, in the future. A bit of confusion. We know God, we see His glory, we see His majesty, holiness, wisdom, justice, righteousness. If we know man, we see the glory given to him by God. The care, the glory, the honor. But we also see man's sin and rebellion. That diminishes our view of man. We see the consequences of that sin and rebellion. And we think, eh, Lousy sinner. What is man? (laughs) Man is a being who has squandered the good gifts God has given to him, rebelled against him, failed to carry out his care for his creation the way that we ought to. Marring it, wasting it, misusing it. What is man? Man is also evil and full of sin. So what do we do? What do we do? (laughs) How can such a man stand in the presence of such a majestic God? Psalm 8 hints at the solution. And the New Testament looks to Psalm 8 and shows us the solution. Again, look at our New Testament reading in Matthew. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and even the children shout, Hosanna, glory to God. The little children are shouting this out. The authorities, the chief priests, the scribes are offended by this, indignant. Do you hear that, they say to Jesus? And he goes, yeah. Have you ever heard the psalm? Ever heard what was written? Out of the mouths of babes and infants he has ordained praise. 
Jesus is quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, and applying it to himself. That psalm was written about me. He claims to be God, and he claims to be the fulfillment of the words of the psalm. Later in Matthew, Jesus is again going to look to uh, Psalm 8 and make another claim. Chapter 28, verse 18 and following. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 4 of Psalm 8 and following, but especially verse 6. You've given him dominion over the works of, the, of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All authority, all things. Jesus says, that's me. I am that man. I am the God who receives praise in verse 2. I am the man who has authority in verse 6. And so if we're going to reconcile the problem that Psalm 8 raises, we have to look to the one that Psalm 8 refers to. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Because it is true that God is rightly full of wrath for man's rebellion against him and our failure to love one another, to see the dignity that he has given to each other, to govern his creation wisely. God is also a God of mercy and of grace, who has loved us with a great love and been rich in mercy toward us, who is mindful of us and cares for us. And he's given a solution in his very own son, who did the work that we cannot do and will not do in obedience to God, took the penalty on our behalf, and offers himself and his righteousness as the cure for all who, who repent and look to that work by faith alone. And now this God, this covenant God, this Lord, our Lord, becomes our Lord personally. We are his people. He is our God. What Luther and Calvin knew is that we, when we understand who God is and who we are, <laughs> we understand our sin and our need for salvation because we understand the consequences of that sin. Unlike the prevalent teaching of their day, they saw in Scripture a beautiful and a simple answer. Repent and believe. There's a righteousness that is not yours that God is going to give you so that you can be reconciled to Him. You can't do anything to save yourself. Not by good works. Not by buying relief from punishment. Not by alms. Not vicariously through so-called saints. Or through the works of the church. You can do nothing. So confess it. <laughs> confess your sin. Confess your inability. And look to Christ, who's done the work for you and receive the gift of God by grace and through faith. Repent, believe, and be saved. Luther and Calvin were right. That, that is wisdom. And I think we can conclude with the psalmist. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
and all the earth. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, indeed, we must confess with David, with your word that you gave to David, that your name is majestic in all the earth. You have given us honor, but we sinned in rebellion against you. And you, the offended party, mended the relationship the humble service of your very own Son. We look to Him and to Him alone. The gift that you have given to us in Him and receive it again by grace and through faith. We would ask that you would teach us, continue to teach us about who you are, your character and your work done for your people. And O Lord, teach us about ourselves. We need to learn about ourselves. We're a bit blind when it comes to ourselves. Open our eyes. Help us to see us ourselves for who we really are. To see those around us for who they really are. There's sin. There's rebellion. There's all sorts of evil and wickedness. But we are yours, made in your image. Crowned with glory and honor. May that glory and honor not be lost in continued rebellion. But rather may those in rebellion come to repentance and faith. And may you be pleased to use us humbly to reach out to those around us. And again, to always be ready with an answer for the hope that we have. We ask it, Father, in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.